Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have a first-degree black belt under Eddie Bravo and one of the founders of 10th Planet Portland, Oregon, Phil Schwartz. Phil is one of the most underrated minds in jiu-jitsu at present. Phil is one of the OGs in the 10th Planet system. He was there during the early formation of the organization. This is an information-dense episode I'm sure you will get value out of. Some of the things we cover in the episode are imposter syndrome, coaching advice, coining the name Honey Hole with Nathan Orchard, what is the kryptonite for leg locks, the possible return of the Shugyo Invitational, the five ways to break any joint, and much more. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and Spotify, and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Consider becoming a patron. Leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show at anchor.fm forward slash Forever White Belt. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at Forever White Belt. And check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. If you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato. They're amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. They offer judo, kickboxing, wrestling, and much more. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Phil Schwartz. Phil, thanks for being on the show, man. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So I should let everyone know, as you probably heard in the intro, well, Phil is a 10th planet black belt under Eddie Bravo. That's correct, right? I just actually got my first degree from Eddie Bravo last weekend. Congratulations, by the way. It's Thank huge. you. Somehow it feels like being a real black belt now. Whereas when I got my black belt, I still had a little bit of that imposter syndrome. And I was like, man, I mean, I was working so hard as a brown belt. And when I finally got my black belt, you know, I was obviously ecstatic and I knew that I had earned it. It wasn't a question of that, but it was just, yeah. I knew I was the most junior black belt in the world of black belts, you know, like I, I had gone from being a very senior brown belt to being the most junior black belt. And now that I've been a black belt for three years and I've participated in giving other people black belts and ranking other people up, I feel very settled now as a black belt. And so getting my first degree was a cool experience. And the thing about degrees is a lot of people assume that you just get them. And that's not true. You don't just get them for waiting around. They are time-based, but you have to be active during that time. So Mm. you got your black belt and then 10 years later, you're due for two or three stripes. You don't just show up and get stripes. You know what I Mm. mean? Your professor Mm. has to see you and you have to be active in the pursuit of jujitsu still constantly. What an amazing event too. You were at headquarters, Eddie Bravo presented you with the uh, the certificate. I guess I should give some context too. I've been lurking the beginning pretty much of your 10th planet journey way, way back when Eddie had long hair and he thought he was going to be a rock star and everything. <laughs> and because uh, I was one of the first maybe members of Eddie's $5 a month thing. Yeah. And this was before I even did jujitsu. I was just watching because I'm just one of those weird, I need to over-prepare before I do anything kind of guys. Interesting. And, and so I was watching this and, and I'd always see this quiet guy because there were all these, you know, more personalities, it seemed like within at headquarters. And you were always there as an uke or something like that. It seemed like for Eddie, I've always been interested in the quiet types too. That not, not that you're quiet, but it seemed like that's how it looked like in the videos. I'm interested in what they have to say. And then, and then seeing your evolution has been really a fascinating journey of what I've seen to where you're at now. How was that going back to headquarters and, and seeing that array, that group of people, which looked nothing like those days? 
Thank you, man. Wow. That's a great question. That's like one of the best questions I've ever been asked. <laughs> There's a lot to break out there. First of all, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I was born there, grew up there. And so joining Eddie's gym, I mean, and, and also Eddie is such a great personality that when you're around him, everyone gets quiet. You know, it's hard to be as loud. The only person that I've ever seen kind of like make Eddie quiet was Joe Rogan uh-huh. because there would be a lot of moments where um, in those days where after class, we would go outside and smoke weed outside and on the corner, on, you know, on the street. And it would just be Eddie and Joe and they'd be talking back and forth. And then there'd be me or two or three or four other guys just kind of hanging out, listening, you know, just listening. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. it wasn't our time to speak. It was just time to listen, you know? But yeah, those days were really fun. You saw some old footage of me. I have been training with Eddie since I was a white belt. I got my blue belt from Eddie Bravo's black belt, Scott Epstein. They were kind of co-teaching at that time. And then uh, as a blue belt, I needed to get smashed more than I was. And I moved to Eddie's gym where all the really tough roles were. And I just got smashed. I just got smashed for years and years. I just got smashed. And at some point, Eddie started using me as his uke. And man, he is one of those guys like, like he can really throw you around. He's so strong and he's so technical. And so it's one of those things where it's like, I wasn't like putting on a show. I would really, I was really like, no, 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 I'm I'm tapping, I'm tapping, I'm tapping, you know, because man, he really can like fling you, you know? And so there was a time recently where he came up to visit Portland and I was the UK again. Of course, this is 10 years later, right? My body's 10 years older, but we did all go-go plotas and go-go, what Eddie calls go-go launch, where you basically sweep somebody backwards with a go-go plata, you know, and your foot's in there under their neck the whole time. So yeah, so he did that to me (laughs) for about two hours that day, but going back to HQ now, having that been my foundation, I mean, man, it's amazing how much it's changed, how many people that were in my class, because I call them classes, you know, Mm kind of guys come in classes and the people who make it, you look like, damn, we all, it's kind of like we all went through boot camp together kind of thing, you know? And so all the guys from my class, like there's quite a few of them who are running their own gyms now, you know? And so guys that I got my black belt around the same time and that I was a blue belt at the same time, purple belt at the same time, brown belt at the same time, we all came up together and now they're running gyms, you know? And so at HQ, Eddie has a whole new crop of guys there, new killers coming up. Guys that haven't cracked it. You haven't heard of them yet. They haven't made the the mainstream yet. But that was what was so special about this weekend was this was a weekend for all of these high level black belts that are spread out all around the country to come back together and to all be on the same mat at the same time. So that was a long way of saying it was really special to get promoted in front of all those guys and to be part of that. There's just something about it. I mean, if you and you walk into it and this is not a... <laughs> Considering the name of the podcast, this is not an exclusionary thing, but there is something special about the energy in a room when you walk in and you know every single person in that room mm-hmm. is a black belt. And you're like, wow, like this is a crazy concentration of super talented people. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool. You saw Herzog there. You saw Nathan there. You saw all these faces from the early days. And the way I saw you too, just the early concepts of Eddie, like being so different from everything, his idea. I'm like, who's this guy to think that he's going to start an organization and do it differently than everyone had been doing at that time? I think people take that for granted now, how revolutionary it was at that time to take that attitude. And for you as well to say, you know what, I'm going to be one of the space monkeys to get on this rocket that's never been flown before. <laughs> totally. 
because people don't understand that prior to around 2014, when Eddie had the rematch with Hoyler, I think it was mm-hmm. 2014, prior to that, 10th Planet was widely hated on and discredited. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Widely, like not in a passive way. And I trained at gyms where I was constant, made fun of, poked at for being a 10th planet guy. You know, mm-hmm. it was l- straight up looked down on. And it wasn't until the rematch, I forget when the Metamorphs was, but it wasn't until the rematch of Eddie and Hoyler that the whole world was like, oh shit, wait a second. And that was when the steroids got injected into 10th planet jujitsu. You know, that mm-hmm. was when things got really crazy and the association grew very rapidly, mm-hmm. uh, our prominence on the main stage grew rapidly. We had a lot of superstars shooting up Gio Martinez, Nathan Orchard, Grace Gundrum. And so things started to change a lot during that time, but that was a great time. That was an awesome time of expansion. And we kind of like showed people that we were legit, you know? Yeah. It's just bizarre to see all you guys too. You said that core group, how you all scattered to all over the world and it became a global organization really. And now it's just like a normal thing for people, (laughs) 10th planet everywhere, Russia. It's just incredible to see that evolution. And we really are, we're still a tight group, you know, like it's, we're still relatively a small organization compared to other organizations. We're a small organization compared to Gracie Baja or Alliance Mm. or something like that. So for us, it's important to communicate and to be developing our own styles, but also stay close to the original intent, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your academy, 10th Planet Portland, Oregon. Fun fact, by the way, 10th uh, Planet Portland is where uh, the term honey hole came from. Is Nathan still involved with uh, 10th Planet Portland? Uh, Nathan Orchard and I started 10th Planet Portland together in May of 2013. We had met earlier at headquarters when I was training in headquarters and Nathan came down for a very famous story where Nathan had been competing as what was at the time, again, this is old school jujitsu shit. At the time, Nathan had been competing at what was called a Ronin. And that meant that he had no 10th Planet gym, but he wanted to be 10th Planet. So Eddie required, if you were in that scenario, you get whatever training you could get, but you put on a 10th Planet rash guard and you go out and you compete and you compete wearing that 10th Planet rash guard and you let everybody know you're a 10th Planet guy. Like Mm. it was more at that time, there were so few of us. It was more important to have eyes on us and people saying like, yes, I am willing to say that I'm a 10th Planet guy. You know, that was called a Ronin. And that was like the craziest thing to be because you had no school, no support, no coach, nothing. You were just a guy going out, fighting people, trying to do the moves you were learning. So Nathan was crushing people as a Ronin. And Eddie gave him his blue belt online on the old forum. Eddie made a video saying, because what we would do is we would videotape the competitions and then you would post them online and people would critique you. Anyway, so Eddie had seen enough of Nathan's competitions to know that he was beyond a blue belt. So he said, hey, Nathan Orchard, I'm giving you your blue belt over, over the internet. And I don't think anybody had a problem with that. And then two weeks later, Nathan went down to headquarters and that was when I met him. He came to visit. Like you said, I was just a guy training with Eddie Bravo, a purple belt at the time. And Nathan came down and we started hanging out. We smoked a joint together and we realized that we both kind of had this organ connection, but it didn't mean anything at that moment. Nathan thrashed a bunch of people at HQ and then got his purple belt. So <laughs> Nathan was a blue belt for all of two weeks. Then a couple of years later, we met back up in Portland, Oregon, and that was how 10th Planet Portland started. Flash forward 10 years and change. Nathan got married. I actually performed. I was actually the 
the priest for his wedding. I've performed three jujitsu weddings now. That's a diff- different subject. Anyway, so Nathan has moved to Seattle and opened uh, Ten Planet Seattle. So now there's a Ten Planet Portland and a Seattle in inclusion to a, a bunch of uh, other schools in, in Oregon. One of the things I want to talk about is doing things prematurely. You opened the school, the academy at Purple Belt, but I've heard you say before that you would not recommend doing that. Can you tell us why? <laughs> yeah, I, I could definitely tell you why. Okay, a couple of reasons. One reason is that you just purely for your own benefit, you should not be in a rush to monetize your jujitsu. Okay. I think that we see this a lot in the conversation of college sports and amateur versus pros and all this kind of stuff. There is a certain time where you shouldn't be trying to just get a sponsor and get paid and make videos and do all this kind of stuff. It's like, it's okay to be a kid. You know what I mean? Like, it's okay. You should have a childhood. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, as soon as you open a school, now you had a child. So now you're shifting energy from your own training, your own progress, and you're shifting it to other people. Meanwhile, you are in no way a master of anything. You're just someone who's on the path. So by your analogy, you're the teen parent. Yes, you're the teenage (laughs) parent. You know what I mean? And you love your children and your children might grow up to go to Harvard, but you wouldn't recommend being a teenage parent to anybody. And that's a great analogy, actually. That's exactly what it is. And there were times where I'm sure that my training and my development suffered. At the same time, I was training with Nathan Orchard every single day. And in that way, I was training harder than I'd ever trained. And I was training consistently. And there was a time where we were training 12 or 14 times a week. And that felt really good. And I got better and faster. And then I would go back to headquarters. And some of those guys in my class, I would feel a little stronger or a little sharper than they were. And they were like, well, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just doing the Nathan Orchard program. That was also a really good time for my development. But if you're not opening up a gym with Nathan Orchard, uh, <laughs> it could be a really hard road, you know I mean? And business-wise, there's a lot of competition now. And let's get into something technical and honest, since you said you were going to ask honest questions. And I like the questions that you ask. I actually had the opportunity to start coaching for a while as a blue belt. When I was a blue belt and a purple belt and a brown belt and even a black belt, I was so confident in what I had to say. I just was one of those people that was born with like a natural amount of confidence. Like I just assume that my answer is a good answer. You stumbled upon my next question on this premature topic. You coached at Bluebell. I I know that you did this, but you think this was a bad idea as well. And why? It's not. Okay. Here's the thing. This is what I'm trying to get at. It's not that it was bad because in my school and in my program, I let people start coaching as early as Bluebell also, but they do it under a lot of supervision and systems. When I was coaching as a blue belt, I had essentially no supervision. And when I was, when I started teaching in the gym as a purple belt, I still had no supervision. All I could do as a purple belt was my best impersonation of Eddie Bravo. It was like that scene in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where the baby turtles stand up and they start doing karate because they're like watching their master. You know what I mean? Like I was barely copying Eddie. I didn't have that many original thoughts at the time. You don't have your voice yet, right? I didn't have my voice, you know? And because I was technical (laughs) at the time, this is a weird tangent. At the time, Eddie Bravo in one rant, one time accidentally paid me the biggest compliment that I'd ever had at that, at that moment as a purple belt. He said, 
he was just talking about people in class. And he said, Phil Schwartz could just teach a six hour seminar right now. And I'd never taught a seminar in my life at that moment. Of course, I was a purple belt. And I was like, oh my God, like he knows that I'm just studying this shit. And that I'm just like, I know all the moves and I'm aware of all, like he just knew it was such an off the cuff thing that he said in the moment that was like, for years, that was the nicest thing anyone ever said about me. In wow, my head. It really stuck with you. It really stuck with me. I was like, oh my God, he really sees in this one moment, he saw how much dedication I've put in as a purple belt. So even if I was a good purple belt as an instructor, I was doing two disservices. I was doing a disservice to myself in my own growth. And I was also doing a disservice to my students because I was maybe giving them information that I wasn't as confident and even stuff that years later, I would say, hey, that was wrong. We, we updated that. We don't do that anymore. But I taught it that way for years, but we don't do it that way anymore. You know, sure. like, for example, I'll give you a weird one. The triangle choke. I have been taught the triangle choke wrong by so many people so many times. And I've done it wrong for so many years that I can't believe how much wrong information there is about the triangle choke. Now that I do it correctly, it's like one of my best moves. It wasn't hard. It's just, I was missing that information before, you know, like I used to teach it as you're square to your partner. You squeeze your knees, you push your hips up and you pull their head down as hard as you possibly can. <laughs> And it was like an exertion move. Now I see it all as a matter of angles. It's all about angle. The more you're angled, the better the mechanics work of everything. So when I teach a triangle choke now, I teach it as a black belt. I give black belt level details and hopefully I transmit black belt level standards to my students when they're white belts. When I was a purple belt, I couldn't do that. I was giving purple belt level standards and purple belt level details. Mm -hmm. So that was a disservice. Okay. Now let's talk about the positive side. Reps, reps, reps. We know that it's all about reps. So think about this like an RPG game. As you go through, you spawn as like a basic character. You're like a basic character. You have no attributes. You know what I mean? By the time that you get your blue belt, you should have at least I always tell my blue belts this, by the time you get to blue belt, you should have one thing that you're so good at. Everybody respects it. Even the black belts will respect it. You might be ankle lock guy, or you might be arm bar guy or whatever. You know what I mean? But like, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a warrior or a paladin or what you, you kind of start to see your class. Right. And then as you go on, you gain new options, new attributes, but as you develop, you have to choose a direction. You don't have to, but people tend to choose one of these directions, right? Are they going to be the warrior or are they going to be the wizard? And it has a lot to do with personality type. You know what I mean? And that isn't to say that warriors can't do magic. And it isn't to say that wizards can't fight. But in our world, I always kind of felt like I was going to be a wizard. And in my partnership with Nathan, that worked really well for a number of years where he was the warrior, I was the wizard, and we kind of teamed up. And that was like a cool partnership. But I was putting a lot of energy into the craft of teaching and the craft of being a good jujitsu instructor, of understanding the mechanics and really breaking the techniques down, really fighting to get a deeper understanding of all the techniques in my own head mm -hmm. so that I could transmit them better to my students or to other instructors, to my instructors, to my people in, in my organization. So, and you can't do everything. So if you put all your energy into competition, then you're not putting as much energy into teaching. And like, this is one of the things actually that's kind of funny about Gordon Ryan. Like obviously Gordon Ryan's competition record is undeniable and people also see him as a great instructor, 
And I have no doubt that he knows his stuff. Like he's teaching from his own experience, you know, but I have, I've had this like vision when I think about what would it be like if Gordon Ryan opened a gym and was like, just sitting there in fundamentals class, teaching white belts every day. You know what I mean? Mm. Like how long would that last for? (laughs) I don't think that it would last very long. So it's like, there's a lot of uh, craft in bringing people from knowing nothing about jujitsu to feeling the confidence of jujitsu and beyond. And as an instructor, I'm trying to become better at that craft. I'm working that craft in addition to working my own jujitsu. Yeah. I I mean, I see the analogy being like, if you were a star NFL football player and you just happen to own an NFL team on the side or something as well. Well, have you noticed that most great players don't become great coaches? Yeah, 100%. It's, it's right out there, right in front of you. And yeah, most Dana people, hurt. that's right. And most great coaches weren't great players, but they loved the game yeah. and they studied the game. A lot and of they people miss that. Yeah, they went deeper. That. Those coaches are obsessive and they're going deeper into the game mm-hmm. and they're trying to process and process and process like a supercomputer. And then mm-hmm. they want to they want to deliver this perfectly shaped golden apple to one of their athletes. Mm -hmm. And then that athlete just hits a slam dunk with that. You know what I mean? Like that's the goal of being a coach, you know? And like, even like this last 10th planet qualifier that we just did this weekend and Nathan Orchard won, it was cool for me and, and our black belt, Sam Hardy, uh, who just opened a school 10 planet tiger. And it was cool to be in Nathan's corner in that opportunity and to be strategizing backstage and saying, you know, what's this guy, what's the next guy going to be good at? What are we good at? Where can we win this match? It excites me to be in those strategy conversations. Even if I'm not physically in the match, I'm still participating. One of the things I've heard you say before, and I want you to give us some clarity on is one of your core rules that you've mentioned, you are not allowed to move faster than you can move safely. Can you, can you expand on that, please? (laughs) Okay, so this is uh, comes from the Latin Festina Lente, which is a quote that I first heard when I was in college. I was doing a classics class and I was reading a lot of ancient uh, Greek and Roman literature. And the Emperor Augustus, this was his maxim, Festina Lente. And so I heard it and it just hit me like a ton of bricks in my head. I had like a big epiphany in that moment as a kid. I would guess I was like 18 or 19 years old. And that was actually before I started jujitsu. So that's prior to my jujitsu journey. And those words have just stuck with me. And so there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. But basically what it means in the direct translation is to make haste slowly. And so festina lente, to go fast slowly, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel those pressures in myself where there's this dueling interest between advancing, going for the kill, pushing forward, moving ahead. And also at the same time, never wanting to make the wrong step, never wanting to lose your momentum or to get too confident. And so those two really balance each other well inside of me, where I have a careful side that's very considerate and very cautious, but I also have a brash side that wants to like forge ahead, push ahead, innovate and be aggressive, you know? Mm. Warmups, are they BS or not? Okay. So I think that the warmups are, that's a good question. And that was one of the top, the warmups were certainly one of the topics of uh, this weekend's retreat with Mm. Eddie. I think that the warmups are misnamed. And I think that because they're misnamed, they put the wrong idea in people's head. Are we talking in the context of 10th planet warmups now or traditional warmups? I'm talking about the 10th planet warmups. 
Uh, Eddie has a system of katas that he calls the warmups. And the, the problem with that is that they've become very dense in the way that they contain essentially the entire live curriculum of what Eddie is interested in right now. And so when you study the warmups, what you find is you find all of the, and now remember, Eddie Bravo is a genius in jujitsu and he has studied this art form for many, many years. So when you see these warmups, so in the warmups, when you study them, you see all of these transitions and flows and techniques that Eddie believes are critical to becoming a champion. Hmm. And so he drills his guys through these techniques, through these flows, and then they do a certain set of live drills that are also kind of complementary and important. One of the subjects that Eddie brought up was that these are simply his flows and he invites anybody to set out to make their own set of flows. So that was kind of a really interesting challenge that was given to the black belts. Go out and make your own flows. Now, to get to your other question, traditional jujitsu warmups. We have done them for many years. You know, line drills, essentially, we sometimes we jog, we shrimp, we forward roll, we bear crawl. We do all of that stuff sometimes. Sometimes we warm up with double leg takedowns to mount. Sometimes we warm up with two minutes top, two minutes bottom guard passing, live drills. There's a lot of different ways to move your body. And to answer your question, I don't think that the warmups or warmups are BS. I think that it is important to get your body warm. How you do it is the question. Mm -hmm. And I think that schools that spend no matter what, 30 minutes every class doing calisthenics, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's necessary. I've always been a lazy person who didn't want to work out. And I did jujitsu to get a workout because it was great for me. And now I'm at a point where I have to actually go to the gym and lift weights in addition to jujitsu. But for a long time, jujitsu was my workout. That was the thing I wanted to do instead of going for a run, instead of going to the gym. So I want to get to class and I want to do jujitsu. I mean, I'm not going to be sitting on the sidelines taking rests. I'm going to be rolling, rolling, rolling uh, as much as I get or drilling, drilling, drilling. So I think that essentially the warmups can either be a really, really good, useful part of the class if the instructor is engaged, or they can be essentially a cushion where the instructor just doesn't have to think or do anything. And the students kind of carry out these movements. So let's touch upon your teaching style. A lot of it I noticed is distills down to simplification. And one of the topics I've heard you talk about is something to the effect of there's five ways to break every joint. Can you expand on that? Oh, okay, sure. First, simplification. I have a concept that I call the cheat sheet. And essentially the idea is that we cannot go into battle with an encyclopedia of jujitsu on our hip. So I can't be in a live context and think about having to flip to page 562 to find the answer to my problem. I can't have single solutions to single problems. I need a few solutions to every problem right? I need fewer tools that I can use in more places. That's what the cheat sheet is. So for example, uh, a reaping heel hook, I start an Ashigurami, I lace my outside leg over and through my partner's legs. And I end up with your foot on the outside of my hip and my feet intertwined lacing through your legs, right? I have an outside reaping heel hook, right? If I do the same thing on your arm, we call that an umaplata. I take your arm to my outside hip. I lace it through. I connect my legs. And if I can, I even hook your far side armpit to prevent you from rolling through. That's an umaplata, but it's the same shape. The shape of the reaping heel hook is the shape of the umaplata. 
similar to the shape of the Google plata. So finding these shapes has become an obsession of mine because mm. I'm simplifying the way that I think and the way that I teach down to similarities. One that I really love that you mentioned before is the mounted triangle and the arm in triangle. You're just sort of replacing limbs here. That's right. But why would we see these any differently? They don't work differently mechanically. So we have to accomplish the same goal. I want to think of every triangle as the same. Every triangle is the same. So to answer your other question, the five ways to break the arm, I have a compression when my arm bends in. I have the opposite of compression, which is when my arm extends out. That's extension. I have a bent lock up, which is Americana. I have bent lock down, which is Kimura. And I have a wrist lock. Those are the five ways that I know to attack the arm. Bent in, extended out, torquing up, which is Americana, torquing down, which is Kimura and wrist. There are three major joints in the arm, the wrist, the elbow, the shoulder. These are the ways that those joints break. So if you know that, there's only five answers to how to break the arm. How many different configurations are there with my body of how I can achieve those five answers? Many, 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 many configurations. Okay. And we have a name. We have a name for every single one of those configurations. Oh, it's an umaplata. It's a monoplata. It's a Kimura. It's an Americana. It's a Swifty. You know what I'm saying? It's an arm yeah. bar. It's a razor lock. Oh, it's a straight arm bar. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, okay, okay. We understand what we're talking about here. There's only five. Which one of the five are you doing, right? So that's the kind of idea in my head. I haven't proven this yet, but I'm proving it to myself. That's the kind of idea that I think can change how we teach jujitsu and how we help people understand better. Because all you have to do is attack the arm in one of those five ways. The leg works the same way. The leg has a defined number of joints and we know how they work and we know how to attack them. And if you know all of that, then the rest of it is just about orienting your body to get one of those leverage points. Can you tell us a time when you uh, saw something in jujitsu that changed the direction of your academy? Oh, yeah. I mean, like you brought up the honey hole. I mean, that was huge. Nathan had a match with Gary Tonin. Gary Tonin backstepped him into cross Ashi, honey hole, whatever you want to call it, saddle 411 inside Senkaku. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever you want to call it. Anyways, Gary put him in it and hit him with an inside heel hook. Then we had also seen Gary do the same thing at EBI one. Gary came in the EBI one. It was cool to be there. It was a dingy nightclub and Gary walked in and he tapped a bunch of people and he hit these inside heel hooks. And we were like, just study. I was just studying this. Mm -hmm. I was like, Nathan and I were just, we couldn't stop talking about it and drilling it. And it was one of those things where the Danaher guys could have kept everything they wanted to a secret as long as they wanted. But once they came out and started hitting it on people, we were all going to see it and try it out ourselves, you know? Mm -hmm. So we started trying it out and testing it and figuring it out. And wow. just through osmosis of Nathan having rolled one time with Gary or two mm -hmm. times after we had worked on it for a while, we, we delivered it to Eddie or we went to Eddie and said, you know, Nathan said, Hey, check this out. This is what Gary Tonin's doing. And then Eddie told everybody <laughs> about it, which was awesome. And then full circle, I'm watching flow grappling and John G. Hibero, famous world superstar, John G. Hibero, love this guy, go, he's commentating the match and he goes, Oh, he's going to get him in the honey hole. And I'm like, I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Like, that was, that was like our living room. It started in our living room. And now they're talking about it on Flow Grappling. We became a leg lock academy overnight. 
I had always been interested in leg locks, but I was more of a knee bar guy. I was actually a knee bar guy Mm -hmm. for a long time. One of my blue belt moves, like I talked about earlier, one of my, one of my blue belt specialties was knee bar. So I've always been a knee bar guy, never been a heel hook guy. And then after this exposure, it was like, oh shit, this is crazy. And so, yeah, we became a leg lock school and then we started leg locking everybody. And that became like a big part of our brand for a long time. Now it's, now it's changing, but I absolutely expect all of my students to have a deep understanding of the leg locks. And I teach a lot of it and I fall back on it all the time in my game, but I'm now preferring more of a smashing and passing type game personally. Interesting. Very interesting. But the leg lock, the leg lock phase was important and pivotal. I remember the early days when Eddie saying, you know, oh God, I'm, I'm so scared when anyone touches my feet. I just hate this feet game, this ankle game or whatever. Uh, but then he just saw, as you mentioned, what I thought the story was that he saw DDS and Eddie Cummins doing this stuff. And he's like, we have to incorporate this and then disseminate it out to the 10th planet organizations. And then it was deeply embedded in your learning structure. So it's very interesting to hear that it, that you and Nathan sort of had a, quite an influence on this as well into getting this idea whispered into his ears. Yeah. I mean, and it came from, it wasn't just us. I mean, it came from a lot of different eyes and a lot of different, you know, I mean, a lot of different places, but Nathan was the one that had called it the honey hole. That was the name that was given. And again, like us being us, both Nathan and I love to come up with new moves and try new things. And every time we get together now, it's fun because it's like this exchange of here's what I've been doing. Here's what I've been doing. Here's what I've been trying out. So we didn't stop just with that basic first version. I mean, we went, we went and went and went and went and went and, and really ground down the position and learned everything we could. And then everybody was studying Gary and Eddie Cummings and all that. And I, I remember I took an Eddie Cummings seminar one time and it was really important to my understanding of leg locks. And there are things that I still have success with now that I learned in that seminar directly from Eddie Cummings. Another thing you mentioned too, which I'm really excited to hear about too, or just see eventually too, is so many guys now are finally transitioning into like smashing and passing again. And it's, it's such a cool thing to see that trend or, or whatever it may be. I've always thought this was interesting because there's two things that are kryptonite to leg locks and leg locks came so high into the consciousness of jujitsu where it was like, everything's leg locks, only leg locks, leg locks, leg locks, leg locks. But the Barambolo, Spiral, Delahiva, whatever you want to call it, inversion game, crab ride, all of that. That stuff is kryptonite to leg locks. And so is smashing and passing. Smashing and passing is kryptonite to leg locks. Mm-hmm. And so actually, I thought it was interesting because the Brazilians are the best at, or they were really good at both of those things. They're really good at the inversions and they're really good at smashing and passing. And so those two skill sets are actually part of the kryptonite to the leg lock system. And so as much as it's important to learn leg locks still, and you can still get caught off guard, I think that if you learn, and I think what we're going to see, and like this is kind of what happened in Gary Tonin's match. It's like, if you know enough leg lock defense to survive the attack long enough, and you end up on top, you end up being dominant. Obviously, we haven't seen anybody do that yet to Craig Jones. You know, I mean, there's problems that are hard to solve, but I think that smashing and passing is making a big comeback. I think that we're going to see leg locks become less emphasized and positional dominance become more emphasized. And I think that's what Gordon Ryan's doing in his grappling too. He's not just jumping on leg locks, though he could easily probably jump on leg locks and tap people. He's saying, I'm going to sit on you and you can't get me off. And I'm going to sit there until you tap out. And I think that that is showing that even in the Danaher death squad or whatever they're called, I think um, that leg locks is becoming a thing of the past. And I think that there's going to be more positional focus. 
Are there any instructionals that have made a big impact on you? And if so, which ones? Hmm. This might sound weird. I'm not a big fan of instructionals. I know you mentioned seminars too. Seminars I like, but I'm not a big fan of instructionals. Of course, I've watched some. I, I don't think I've ever watched an entire Danaher DVD cover to mm. cover. I jump around in them. I skip through. I mean, I've watched a lot of instructionals over the years. I've watched Ryan Hall. I've watched Jeff Glover. I've watched Gordon Ryan, uh, Million Eddie Bravos. I've watched Eric Paulson. I've definitely, Dean Lister. I've definitely seen a bunch of instructionals. But here's my problem with instructions. There's 50 pounds of shit sometimes and 10 ounces of gold. Mm -hmm. And so an instructor feels like they need to fill the air. So they're going to fill the air with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And they're dragging me along as they fill the air. And they're forcing me to be a gold miner where I have to pay attention and I have to see and wait and wait and wait for that couple of gold nuggets where they really tell me, they really emphasize the thing that I'm looking for. What I personally do is I watch tape. I study live matches. I study them like a football coach. I watch them over and over again. I slow them down. I watch every part of every person's body in the match. And I analyze in my head every decision that they may or may not be making to make that decision. Then I go and I try it out. And I look at why did he put his foot here? Why is his shin doing that? Why does he have this hook or where is he going with this? Why this pressure? Why this lean? And then I feel it out and I try to understand. I try to put myself in the head of Hoffa Mendez or Cobrinha or Gordon Ryan or whoever it is. I try to think like this person. And guess what? The things that they do in live competition, that's the gold. They can't hide it. That's all the gold. They're not mm -hmm. trying to fill the air in a live competition, in an ADCC match. They're not filling the air. Most of the time, they're not showing you, hey, here's something that's just some cool shit I do around the gym, you know, like they're really exposing their best moves and their best intentions. So that's what I choose to study because I feel like it's a shortcut. To flip it on you a bit, I did see a lot of your content, which I really enjoyed on Brandon McCaffrey's uh, paid website with your half guard and, and the other things that you're covering there. Do you have any instructionals? And, and if so, why not? I've never done like a professional BJJ fanatics or anything like that. I filmed mm -hmm. one instructional with Brandon McCaffrey and it is available on his website. In that instructional, I cover a lot of things. I cover a lot of pummeling techniques. I show people how to essentially wrestle up with double underhooks from a disadvantageous bottom position. I show how to escape back control in the context of like an EBI overtime. There's a lot of good stuff in my game there. I, I play a lot of double underhooks half guard, just like Eddie Bravo. So I, I kind of modeled a lot of my style off of him. And I have a lot of success wrestling up from that position where people think that they're on top of me, but really I'm underneath them. So that's a distinction that needs to be made. I've just never been invited. I've never been, uh, I've honestly never felt like a, like I'd, I have had a little bit of that imposter syndrome. I felt like I didn't really deserve it or I wasn't a big enough name to kind of deserve my own instructional series. And I teach to my students. I try to give my students my best and I, I enjoy teaching seminars. I have some seminars coming up uh, that I'm really excited about, but now we are launching our own online learning platform. And once that comes online, it will have a lot of resources, not just of my instructionals, but we're going to have other instructionals and content that will be coming out every single week. There'll be new content on the site and we'll have access to a lot of the great coaches that we have in my gym, which I, there's really some amazing talent. I mean, you know, Amanda Lowen, Sam Hardy, Kevin Hughes, Michael Klingen. I have some great coaches with some great content.
I'm excited about that product coming out. So you'll have access to that hopefully soon. Let's talk about some of those that are in the early competition status here. I know that you said you didn't win your first gold medal until Purple Belt. What kind of uh, advice would you give to those? You know, because this is a very common theme that I'm hearing. I mean, I've heard, I think Bruchesha said he didn't win gold until Brown Belt. What kind of advice do you give to those that are going through that kind of struggle? Yeah, I mean, um, the, and expectations, the way- you know? Yeah, I know. I mean, that's the, and that's where you kill yourself is with the expectations. And and that was what I was saying earlier also about this kind of comes full circle to what I was saying about giving yourself a childhood, not being in such a rush to be a superstar, mm. because sometimes good things take time. And sometimes when you're pressuring yourself, you end up getting nothing and nowhere at all. Like I said, at blue belt, at white belt and blue belt and much of purple belt, I was just taking beatings because the first part of jujitsu is becoming invincible. That's part one, become invincible, become very hard to tap, very hard to submit. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you have to learn defense. Well, how are you going to do that? You have to have people relentlessly attack you. So I was pulling guard. People were passing my guard. I was fighting off defense left and right. You know, I was defending myself for years and years, getting beat up and I was still competing and I would compete and I would get a silver medal here, bronze medal there. You know, I mean, like I would still tap people, but I was just never that guy physically fitness wise, who was just the top guy in the bracket. There was always someone a little better than me. He was a a wrestler or an MMA fighter or something, you know? And then somewhere around purple belt, all of the work I'd been putting in started to connect together I had a string of moves that I was good at, and I started to have a little bit more success as a purple belt, which felt great. And then at the end of purple belt, I was feeling really good. I was feeling like lean and mean. And this is a really interesting thing because I got my brown belt and I kept up the pace of when I was competing as purple belt, but I started as competing as a brown belt and I won more than I'd ever won. I mean, I might've won 10 tournaments in a row as a brown belt. I was just on a tear. And so why is that important? Because it's all about momentum on the train and you're pushing this heavy thing. But once it gets going, if you feed that fire and you keep that momentum going, you're not going to slow down. If you were at the top of the top and you keep pushing, you're going to stay at the top of the top. And if you slow down, you're going to have to reset and you're going to have to regather your momentum. So for me, I would tell people just keep going, you know, just keep going. Don't worry about it and realize that the first two or three years of jujitsu, sometimes five years of jujitsu is learning your defense and learning to be invincible, learning to be hard to submit. And once you're hard to submit, then you're going to be able to go out and impose more of your submissions on people. You're going to become more of a submission hunter. You're going to start killing people and, and, and having your way. One of my little silly musings is that successful jujitsu fighters are people that start as masochists and become sadists because in order to to stick with jujitsu, you have to be like accepting of a certain amount of destruction. But if you stick with it long enough, you get to dole out some destruction. A few years ago, a buddy of mine named Bam, we had a crazy idea to film something different, to make something a little different. It was a jujitsu reality TV show with the focus of having no time limit submission only jujitsu matches. And we filmed it and we put it up online, seven episodes. It's on YouTube for free. It's called the Shugio Invitational. And now Flow Grappling has their own show called Who's Next? And I am loving it because they have taken exactly what we wanted to do and they've put it on the big screen. They did everything. I mean, I I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, man, they really are doing everything we want to do. And it's amazing. And so since then, 
I thought, you know, hey, look, we tried our version of it and now they're doing it with a million dollar budget. So let's hang up our hat. But actually, since their show has come out, I've had more people hit me up recently saying, mm-hmm. bring back Shugio. Let's do more Shugio. I want more submission only, no time limit matches, etc. So I actually think that we could have a second season coming out in the near future. Hopefully we can reboot this fire because I think that people want athletes want no time limit submission only because it's so definitive. And just this morning, what happens? I log on to Instagram and I see that Gordon Ryan and Felipe Pena have signed a contract to do a, what is it? No time limit submission only match. Yeah. It's boring to a live stream. It doesn't work for a live stream. It's boring for a live stream to watch a three hour long match. No one wants to do that. Everybody remembers Gordon Ryan versus Keenan Cornelius when that was live streamed as a no time limit match. Not a great experience for the live viewer, but that's not the way we do our show. I think that this format is going to come back. I think it's exciting. I'm glad that Flo's doing it. And I hope that we get to do another season of the Shugio Invitational. So Phil, thanks so much for being on the show. Where can we get more information about you and everything that you're doing? I'm on Instagram at Phil Schwartz Tempe. My website for 10 Planet Portland is 10planetportland.com. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, please come check us out. Please come visit. We love visitors. Come drop in with us. And uh, yeah, hope I get to train with you soon. Awesome. So everyone, thank you so much for listening again. I'm Adolfo Fronto, your host. Give us the whole thumbs up, five-star review. Phil, thanks again so much for your time. Couldn't appreciate it enough. Thank you.